The Lord knew I needed some humility before I preach. <laughs> There's an old story of a Scottish preacher, young guy who goes up to preach and, and he preaches in bombs and he gets down and he's discouraged, he did terrible. And this old Scottish man comes up to him and said, if you had gone up to the pulpit the way you came down, you would have preached much better. <laughs> so maybe that will be the case. All right. Let, it, let us uh, read uh, God's word again from our study in Luke. We are in Luke chapter 5, making progress, a new chapter. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11. Fishing 101. Fishing 101 is what I entitled this message. <clears throat> Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had had, that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. To get ready for this sermon, some sermon prep, I decided to go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, this is, the, this is the fishing trip we had uh, last Saturday, and it just proved to be a good, you know, uh, sermon prep extra uh, as we think about this fishing passage. Now, I actually did study quite a bit <laughs> on this passage, but, but it was fun to go out and fish together. Um, it, it made me realize, though, uh, we have a little pond in our backyard, and I've probably fished more in that than I have in the rest of my life. Didn't grow up fishing much, but I've learned a lot in the last uh, year and a half being here about fishing and grown a little bit. But I'm still uh, very amateur in uh, fishing, at fishing. And uh, that may have been the, the view that Peter and his cohort had as Jesus tells them to go out into these deep waters. It, it is as if I were to, on last Saturday, be out there, and I'm starting to bark orders to all the different guys, telling them, no, no, you need to use this bait. You need to do that. You need to go over there. This is where it's at. And they would be like, Robert, you know what? Why don't you stick to preaching? And we'll stick to fishing, all right? <laughs> uh, and, and that's very much the case here as Jesus, who is a carpenter and is a preacher, is instructing Peter and his, his fishermen how to fish when they've just come off of a night being skunked and they have caught nothing. And now Jesus instructs them on how to, how to catch fish. It had to have been an incredibly humbling experience for them. And yet, they've encountered Jesus before this, and Peter is willing to listen to the Lord, at least in this command he gives, this strange command that he gives. As we come to Luke chapter 5, it is focused upon, at least in our section here, on the calling of Peter, Peter's calling to ministry. Now, when I was a kid growing up, and I would hear these call narratives where Jesus calls his disciples to himself, I would often get confused. I would think, this is just, I mean, I know it's, I know it's Jesus, but 
it seems as in times that the gospel writers are, are saying, it almost seems like they just met Jesus and he just says, leave your business and come follow me. And, and they just leave and that's it. Like there's, they didn't hear him teach. And that was kind of my perception that they just met this guy random and he tells them to follow him. And they're just like, okay, it's like a Jedi mind trick. You know, we'll follow you. And, and I didn't quite realize until much later that they have had many interactions with Jesus up to this point. Uh, and I think if you, if you put together the different gospel stories, you realize that this is not the first time Peter has met Jesus, uh, but Jesus, Peter has had numerous interactions with Peter up to this point. In fact, the first introduction that Peter and some of the disciples have had to Jesus was in John chapter one, after Jesus is baptized, and then the next day, John the Baptist uh, sees Jesus coming, and he says to the crowd, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the disciples, some of them, Peter included, meet Jesus on that day. And uh, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So that's kind of, we could call the initial introduction. And so they, they, they see Jesus. Then, uh, sometime later, Jesus calls four of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, Matthew 4, Mark 1, record that. And that seems to be better taken as a different call than what we see in Luke chapter five. It was an initial call to, to follow Jesus. And so they are around Jesus, they're hearing him preach. In fact, we just saw last time in our study that uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so they're, they're around him enough to have that kind of relationship and ask him to come and they're seeing what he's done. But, but Peter and his companions are still fishing. They're, that's still their job. And it was probably relatively easy to stay around Jesus since his ministry is around Capernaum right now, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is going to do this miracle there. And so that's where their fishing business was. So they're able to keep up their, their business. But here, Jesus calls them in a particular way to leave their profession, their vocation of fishing, and to follow Jesus full time and to do so in order to catch men in order to enter into this gospel ministry of proclaiming the kingdom and to be a full-time disciple. And that's, so that's what we find here in Luke chapter five. And Luke focuses on Peter because Peter has a prominent role among the apostles. And Peter is always listed first in the listing of the 12. And he's always, uh, always getting himself into trouble with his speech and just speaking out, but he seems to be quite a spokesperson for the 12. And so, yes, there are other disciples, as we will see in the text, but the focus is upon Peter and his call. Now, there's more here, though, than meets the eye, maybe on first reading. And I think it's helpful if we read this passage in light of the conclusion. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's calling Peter and some of these other disciples to full-time catching. And uh, he, he, he says there in the end of verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And I actually think that it's helpful to read the entirety of these verses, verses 1 to 11, with that lens, if you will, of catching men. It's, it's as if all that Jesus does here from verses 1 to 11 is, is almost like an acted sermon to show them what their ministry is going to be like, what, they're, what he's calling them to do, and how that will look. And so there's some lessons built in here to even the way Jesus is going about uh, these, these miracles. Of course, they, they reflect his deity, and that's going to impress Peter in an incredible way as he sees his sinfulness before God. But there's also many lessons here about what it means to be a catcher of men. And so that's the way I want to look at this text, these 11 verses. We want to break it into four sections that naturally divide in the text that way, four ways that sinners are caught for Christ. Four ways sinners are caught for Christ. And in verses one to three, we see our first point, the first way that sinners are caught for Christ is that people are caught by the hearing of God's word. People are caught by the hearing of God's word. In verses one to three, let's look at, Verse one again, it says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. 
And Jesus' popularity and fame are growing rapidly, like wildfire. I mean, if you could heal people uh, like Jesus could and cast out demons, it would draw such a crowd. And that's what's happening. And so much so that it's getting difficult for Jesus to even travel around. In fact, he's often going to have to go out of a city to go into a desolate area to teach because it's too crowded in the city. And his popularity is, is growing so much. They're pressing in upon him to hear the word of God, like crushing him. That's how many people there are. And other gospels will, if you compile the other gospels, you'll, you'll learn that it's every region is coming to where Jesus is to hear him. And he's, Luke tells us he's on the shore of the lake of Gennesaret. Now the Sea of Galilee has a lot of names for it. Uh, Sea of Galilee, that's one. Lake of Gennesaret, it's really uh, better understood as a lake. It's not a sea per se, technically. uh, It's a freshwater lake about eight miles wide and 14 miles long. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, And in the Old Testament, it's called the Sea of Kinnereth or Chinnereth. And so it goes by all these different titles. And that's where Jesus is. He's still near Capernaum. We don't know exactly where he is, but... He is on the shore, and he's being pressed so much that he decides it would be best to just get into a nearby boat and get pushed out into the water and preach from the boat. And there's two boats here, and they're empty. They're not being used at the time. One of them is Peter's boat, and he knows Peter. And so he, he steps into Peter's boat, and he asks Peter to push out a little bit. And this likely would have given some acoustic advantage uh, from the lake, and as the, the land goes up at a, at a kind of a slant, creating a sort of a natural amphitheater, and Jesus is able to then sit down, which was the normal posture for teaching of a rabbi, and begin to teach the people as they're pressing in. It's like there's no more real estate on terra firma that he now has to get into the boat, push out, and this is the only place he can be. And so he transforms Peter's fishing boat into a floating pulpit. And he goes out there. This is open air preaching. We see Jesus preaching in the synagogues, but he's not limited to that. He preaches here in the open air. And the text emphasizes Jesus was teaching the word of God. The word of God. Now, of course, we're so familiar with that phrase. It's just like a equal sign scripture, equal sign the Bible. I mean, we understand the word of God. Here, um, the idea is the word of God from God, the word which comes from God and therefore derives its authority from God. So that, that's the idea Luke has here. It's the word from God. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. And they want to hear this. They want to hear this divine message. And this is what Jesus is all about, preaching. He's emphasized that. Verse 43 of chapter four, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And Jesus is the true prince of preachers. And his word was so compelling. And no one ever spoke like this man did. And Jesus now uses this whole series of events to emphasize the call of Peter to be a catcher of people. And Jesus models it by getting out into the boat and preaching the word of God to people for the very express purpose of catching people for Christ. To preach the word. People are caught for Christ by hearing the word of God. And so Jesus is modeling for Peter what he will be doing. The word is the best bait to be used, if we could put it that way. And not in a a crass way, but just in reality, the word, big W, Christ, proclaimed in the little w word, the scriptures, is how people hear about the truth and are drawn to Christ. Paul made it his practice to preach and teach the word of God throughout his ministry. Later in the book of Acts, volume two of Luke, Paul, many times this is said, but in Acts chapter 19, verse nine, we read, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now Paul made it 
his task to reason, to teach, make known the word of God, the word of Christ. Think of Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Paul writes, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Could be even the word about Christ. So this is how people are caught for Christ. They hear the word of God. You can't come any other way. You can't come to know Christ apart from the word of Christ, apart from the word of God that describes Christ. Sometimes you'll hear, uh, you know, around Christmas and Easter especially, History Channel, different uh, news um, magazines, you know, talking about, you know, searching for the historical Jesus. You know, you just know immediately that they are unbelievers and don't believe because there was this, uh, this push in uh, German higher criticism to separate what they called the Christ of faith from the Jesus of history. And basically what they said was, okay, we need to read the gospels. And they came with a, an assumption, a presupposition of suspicion that the Bible wasn't telling historical truth. And so they said, well, the, the disciples embellished stuff. They made up stuff to tell a theological story. And so we need to separate the myth from what actually happened so we can get to the historical Jesus, the Jesus who actually existed, not the one the disciples embellished in the gospels. And so they ended up making a Jesus in their own making, a Jesus in their own image. The only Jesus that there is, is the Jesus revealed in the scriptures. Are the disciples writing theology? Absolutely, but not disconnected from history. And so they are one and the same. So any attempt to try and say, we're looking for the real Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? Want to know the real Jesus? Open your Bible. And if you don't read and learn about Jesus from the scriptures, you're going to make him look a lot like you. You're going to make Jesus look just like you in whatever era that is. And yet, we have to continue to come back to the scriptures, the word of God. Second uh, Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Um, this is just the next generation, Timothy. So Peter, Jesus is gonna commission Peter and his disciples to be catchers of men, and then Timothy is another generation who's gonna be a catcher of men and a shepherd of men. And he is to do the exact same thing, to preach the word. So if we are going to, if you are going to personally see those in your life whom you love and desire to see come to Christ, if you're gonna see them come to Christ, they must hear the word of God. And that can happen in a lot of ways. I mean, you can read the Bible with them. You could give them a book. You could point them to sermons. You could uh, do a lot of different things, just have personal conversations. But they have to hear the word of God. They have to hear the word about Christ. Let me just make an application for children. I think it's, it's really great that we just continue to pile on truth over years and years and years and say, let's just put as many logs on the fire as we can. So we get our kids reading the Bible. We read the Bible to them. We give them stories that are age appropriate that are gonna encourage them about maybe Christian biography or, or Christian truth or maybe we can read a catechism. Or, but there's so many different things you can do to just pile on and pile on and pile on or maybe you read a story to them and you get them listening to sermons and make sure they're in church so they're hearing the word of God because as you pile on more and more logs of truth, it just allows for that moment when God will ignite for that just to go up in flames. You don't want there to be nothing there, no truth. In fact, oh man, I wish I could think of it. This just came into my head. There's a great story about some guy in England who, who heard the truth time and again, time and again, time and again, and he uh, 
He, he didn't profess faith in Christ. It wasn't until like his 80s and he's doing work in his field and all of a sudden it comes into his mind truth that he had heard when he was a kid uh, being told to him and the Lord convicted him greatly at that moment. But it was only because that truth had been placed there. It was only because that truth had been latent within his mind and, and set there that God at the right time caused it to ignite. And so we have to just pile up truth, pile up truth. And that's, of course, not true just for our children. But I think as we are patient and we're praying for them to come to understand uh, truly and to truly know the Lord, we just keep praying for them and we put the word of God before them and we keep piling on logs and piling on logs. And we do that together as a community, by the way. And not just parents. Of course, parents are most responsible for their own kids. But the whole church, we want to be pouring into uh, the young people to have the truth and know the truth and have a biblical worldview that God might take that truth and bring regeneration. So, people are caught by hearing the word of God. Secondly, people are caught by heeding God's command. People are caught by the heeding of God's command in verses four to seven. Verse four says, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. The preaching's finished. Jesus says, amen. He's in the boat. The crowd is just massive. What are you gonna do? And so Jesus says, hey, instead of going in, let's go out farther. And he just takes this small group of guys, the fishermen that he knows already, and he, he turns to Peter with a strange request a seemingly foolish request, actually. He wants them to take him out to fish. Put you out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. The term for nets used here is uh, a trammel net. It's, it's a net for deep water fishing. It's in contrast to uh, shallow water day fishing that uh, terms are used in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. This is a different term. These are massive nets and in verse two, we were told that they've been cleaning these nets, which means that they had spent the prior night fishing, and it, they said, they, he's gonna say they caught nothing, and so now they've, they're cleaning their nets. Maybe they're cleaning while they're listening to Jesus, I don't know. And, and they're, they're getting ready for another day of fishing. They're kind of wrapping up, cleaning their gear, putting it away, and Jesus is like, hey, let's go out. Let's go out fishing. Peter responds with a generic address, uh, master. It's like, it's a, it's a respectful term, but we're gonna see it. it's contrasted with his later response of Lord in verse eight. But he says master, and look what he says in verse five. Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. In other words, hey, we've been out there. This is our job. This is our profession. It's not a good day for fishing. In fact, you don't fish during the day in these waters. The best time is to go at night. And we were there and we didn't catch anything. I mean, we're pros and we got nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And they're tired. It's not a good time. <laughs> and like we said, if you're, if you're Peter, maybe he's thinking, Jesus, you're a carpenter, we're fishermen, you're a preacher, this is our job, this is our vocation. I mean, this would be like me getting to play with Tiger Woods and being like, you know, on your backswing, uh, I just wanna make a little critique for you. <laughs> I think you would hit it much better and then I slice it into the woods, you know. <laughs> and, and so Peter, he trusts the Lord. He knows what the word of Christ has accomplished already. He's heard the word of Christ. He's seen what he did for his mother-in-law. He's seen what he did to that demon in the synagogue as he called, uh, rebuked him. He's seen Jesus, maybe for up to a year or more, ministering. And so, though this seems foolish to him, he still does it. So we might say Peter has a weak faith here, but, but a true faith, a genuine faith. At your word, I will let down the nets. That's a great motto to live by. Take out the nets part. At your word, Lord, I will blank. Fill in the blank. And there's times in our lives when we go, Lord, what are you doing? Why this circumstance? Why now? Why this? 
and, and it's easy to, and the Lord doesn't always act that way, uh, where it seems foolish, but there are times when we go, Lord, I don't understand this. And yet, we know the clear commands of God that are before us in the scriptures, and, and we say, but Lord, at your word, I'm gonna fulfill the responsibilities that you have, I'm gonna live by your word, despite me not understanding these circumstances. And that's really what, what Peter does. Lord, this does not seem wise, but at your word, at your word. We do not need to be comfortable. We do not need to be praised. We do not need to be respected. We do not need to be in control. We do not need to be appreciated. We only need to obey. And so Peter obeys. And Luke records this in such a way that just as Peter is obedient, our attention is taken to the great catch of fish. It's almost like, you know, guys are casting their line out and they're talking and then all of a sudden it's like they're in the middle of a story and then it's like, fish on, fish on! <laughs> and that's what happens. You know, they, they're talking and then all of a sudden, boom, this massive catch of fish. They throw it out there and I remember, you know, uh, it's like, it seems to happen with girls. You know, it's like you're trying to fish, fish, and, you know, with Charlie fishing and nothing, nothing. And then a girl, they give her the rod and she's like, I've never fished before. And she throws it in and it's like, immediately fish, you know. And that's this situation here. You know, Jesus is not a fisherman, but he's like, hey, just throw the nets in. And then, boom, the result is this incredible catch. They slayed. They had piles of fish, as we might say. And, and Jesus knew exactly where these fish were, or he directed them to this place. It's like they had the divine sonar system. You know, you had the fishing, and you're like, oh, lots of fish here. Jesus knew exactly where to be. In fact, it was so many, Peter had to ask for help, probably from James and, and John. And their boats start to sink, because there's so many fish. Now, think about this. Boats are made for this kind of thing. They're made to hold uh, fish. I mean, this is their job. They get the fish, bring them in, take them. Uh, and don't think of like a little canoe. That's not what they have. Uh, they, they unearthed uh, in 1986, I believe, a first century fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. And it's actually in, maybe some of you have seen it if you've been there, it's preserved. Um, in a museum there, and you can see it. You could fit quite a few people in there. And, uh, and so these are made to, to hold a lot of fish. And not only that, their nets are nets that can hold a lot of fish. I mean, they're, they're commercial fishermen. And yet, this is too much for them. It's like buying a truck, and it has a towing capacity of so much. And, and, and yet, this is, this is far too much for you to tow. And this was just you wouldn't plan for ever catching this many fish. And so Luke is highlighting for us how miraculous this truly was, how odd this was to them, beyond anything they had ever seen. Now, if you had never been fishing before, this is why this is great. Jesus ministers to them right where they're at, fishing. This is what they know. This is what they're great at. Now, if he had taken some, some people out who had never fished before, and he was like, hey, throw the, throw the nets in, and they make this catch, they'd be like, I guess fishing's like this all the time, right? Uh, if you've taken someone out, and it, you just kill, and they're like, wow, fishing's great all the time. Uh, and you're like, you have no idea. Uh, so they might think that, but Jesus does this for them because they would appreciate it the most. They would know this is so unlike anything we've ever seen. I mean, this would be like taking, you know, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, and Arnold Palmer out and playing with them, and you shoot 18. You know, every hole, hole in one. They would be like, whoa. <laughs> uh, they understand and appreciate the most how significant that would be. And so, they are utterly amazed by this, as we will see. Now, one, Rob Davis, he says this. I love what he says. He says, Jesus tips Peter for the use of his boat. And Jesus is a good tipper. <laughs> and he actually quotes from the passage in, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, in applying this, in Matthew 10 verse 42, where Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so he's like, hey, let me use your boat for a second. And here's just some, here's something for, for your efforts, Peter. And they bring in this, the, the biggest catch they've ever had in the history of their enterprise. Now, remember, all of this is orchestrated by Jesus to prepare them for their commissioning, to prepare them to leave fishing in order to catch men. 
And so I think we're not wrong to see this as really a living illustration of what their new job will be like. And there's actually indications even in the text. In, in verse 6, it says they enclosed a large number, a large number of fish. That, that, those two words there occur frequently in Luke and in Acts where it's referring to the large number of people who have come to Christ through the preaching of the word. And so it's, it's this phrase that's used time and again. Uh, Tom Schreiner says, the great catch of fish also symbolizes the many who will come to the Lord through Peter and his fellow disciples, and that they will come to faith because of the Lord's power, not the wisdom or strength of the disciples. So the catch is a living illustration of what their new job will be like. And I think there's two things to, to note here in the text. Sovereignty and responsibility. You see both of those here. One is the sovereign power of God to draw sinners to himself. It was through the power of Jesus that these fish all came to this particular place at this particular time. This was too miraculous. It, for, or, I mean, this was miraculous. It wasn't, couldn't be explained in any other way to have this kind of haul of fish. And yet, at the same time, Jesus gave them a command to cast their nets into the deep water. They had to do that. The fish weren't, Jesus wasn't going to have the fish jump in their boat. They had to cast the net out, and they had to do the work. They had to obey. They had to listen to the command of Christ. And so the point here, I think, is that God uses means in the catching of men. God uses means in all of his creation, but especially in bringing people to Christ. God uses those who have been caught by Christ to catch others for Christ. And he does it to, through the foolishness of preaching as the power of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. On the day of Pentecost, Peter would preach to multitudes, and the result of his preaching was 3,000 people who came to faith in Christ on that day. One sermon, 3,000. That is a, quite a haul of fish, right? Peter, you're gonna catch men. What will that look like, Jesus? 3,000. And then he preaches another sermon uh, not long after that, and 5,000 people come to faith in Christ. I mean, that is what is being illustrated here. Jesus is giving them a, a, just a small sample. It's like a taste of things to come. You guys killed it. This is your retirement day, your last day of work in your profession, and you make the biggest catch of your life. That is like a little picture of what ministry is going to look like after my resurrection. Thousands are going to be coming to Christ as you preach the word. And it's not going to be by your power that they come, but my, my sovereign grace that they are drawn. But you must preach. And so there's this interplay where Jesus leads them in the right place, and he brings them to them, but yet they cast the net. And this is the dynamic we see in Scripture. God uses means. He uses people. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God uses means to catch people for Christ. And yet means without God's miraculous working leads to nothing. So we have to keep this in balance. And as we use the means of sharing and talking, we must pray. We must beg the Lord to work his sovereign grace and power or else our efforts will lead to nothing. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Paul had a role, Paul's had a role, but God makes it happen. God brings growth. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. These are the kind of truths that motivated greats like William Carey to go to the mission field, to pioneer in missions, global missions, because they believed that God's sovereign power would bring his people, his elect, to himself, but not apart from means. And so he wrote a pamphlet about how God uses means to bring sinners to himself. And so he was a committed doctrines of grace guy, but he knew that that did not negate uh, sharing the gospel. In fact, it grounded it. It was the very basis. And so he would say something like this, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. You know God is gonna work, so you work. Sovereignty and responsibility. God uses means in evangelism to bring people to himself. 
<laughs> R.C. Sproul told the story of uh, being in seminary and being in John Gershner's class, who was like the hero for Sproul, who just learned a lot from Gershner. And uh, they're in class, and Gershner is saying, all right, if God is sovereign, why share the gospel with anybody? And he starts going through the class and saying, you know, you tell me, he starts calling on guys. And Sproul said, I'm thankful it wasn't me first. And so he's the last one. And he's asking these guys, I'm not sure. They don't have a good answer. Finally, it gets down to Sproul. And Sproul is like, I don't know what to say. And he says, Sproul, (laughs) if God is sovereign, why should you share the gospel? And Sproul's like, well, I guess because God commands us to. (laughs) <laughs> and Sproul's like, yeah, how about that? God commands us to <laughs> something like, and it's like, yeah, of course, God commands us. That's what is happening here. He says, go, cast your nets out. God says, go into all the nations, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, preach the gospel. I mean, do we need more than that? We are given more than that as motivation, but we don't need more than that. At your word, Lord, I, I don't have to understand all the mechanics and how this works. You are sovereign. You draw people as you please in your timing but not apart from means, and you command me to pray, you command me to preach and share the gospel, and so that's what I'll do. That's what we must do. People are going to be caught for Christ, and people must heed his word and go fishing for people. And yet we know the success is due to the presence of Christ by his spirit. People are caught for Christ by hearing the word and by heeding the command to share the word with him. You know, I don't know if this has been your experience, where the times when you're least desirous to share the gospel and you are impelled by the Lord to do so, despite that, the Lord uses it in a great way. You're like, I'm tired, this is not the right time, I'm, I'm in a hurry, whatever it is, I'm not ready, I'm caught off guard, and here's an opportunity. You're like, Lord, right now? Are you serious? And when you take that opportunity, it's amazing how the Lord often blesses those situations. And that's what's going on here. They're like, we've fished all night, come on. Uh, Okay, we'll do it. And then boom, (laughs) and now they have a fishing tail that they don't have to exaggerate at all. You know, sometimes fishing tails, it's like the fish started like this and it grows over time, you know, as the fish story gets told, but not this one. They always remembered this. Just ask yourself, I don't ask this to, you know, convict you too much, but talking about prayer, talking about evangelism, it always convicts, so don't worry. I'm convicted just as much, but just think, in the last 12 months, have you had any opportunity to cast the net? Have you had any opportunity to talk to Christ about others? I'm actually very encouraged when I talk just casually with some of you. I hear about, uh, you're not even trying to tell me about it, but I can tell that you're interacting with people outside of our church and talking to them about worldview stuff and, and, and showing how your Christian faith helps you interpret those things. And I think those are great avenues to get into the gospel very fast. I mean, it's not hard these days to do that. But just think, all right, have I had any opportunities in the last six months to talk to anyone? And if not, say, okay, Lord, help me. Right now, even think, who's someone who doesn't know Christ, who I know, who I can just pray for every day this week? And just be thinking and praying about opportunities. Maybe they don't live here, so I'll write them a letter or I'll call them. Or maybe, maybe they are here and I'll just pray for opportunities and look for those opportunities strategically and how that can happen. It's a good thing to do, that we would be catchers of men. So, in order for men to be caught, they must hear the word and we must heed the command to go fishing. And that's what we see here. Third, people are caught by the humbled servants of God. People are caught by the humbled servants of God in verses five to eight. And Peter is in awe of Jesus after this. And we'll see the emphasis on how the result was after Peter saw, when Simon Peter saw it. Look there in verse eight. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Peter saw Jesus' person and work on display, he saw himself in a new light. Peter doesn't say, Lord, let's go into business. (laughs) Or, Lord, I'm a terrible fisherman. But Lord, I am a sinful man. We just, and depart from me. This seems strange to us. We think, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Come near to me. Peter is 
seeing himself in a new light. Calvin writes this, no one ever attains clear knowledge of self unless he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord. In seeing the character of God, he saw clearly the corruption of man. And he falls down before Jesus in humility. He, he's overcome by his guilt. He calls him Lord here instead of master. He, he recognizes the uniqueness of the person of Christ in what has just taken place. This could not happen any other way. He recognizes Jesus in part for who he is. And the result of, is seeing himself for who he is. He sees his sinfulness. He's unworthy before the Lord. Now, what I didn't consider that I, someone pointed out as I was studying this week was they said that Peter was overwhelmed not so much by a devastating view of God's holiness, but an experience of an overwhelming goodness and kindness of Jesus. Uh, and yes, that, that is also indicative of his holiness, but, but how does he see Christ rightly? He's overcome by this incredible act of kindness that he shows to them. And the result is awe and wonder, and he sees himself rightly. Now, Peter, I think, is likely already converted at this point. He's already interacted with Jesus many times, and yet he still gets a fresh awareness of his sinfulness post-conversion. Similar to Isaiah, who I think also is uh, post-conversion, and he has this incredible vision of, of Jesus as well, uh, of Jesus, which John tells us in John 12 that it was Jesus, and he's overcome. He's, I'm a man of unclean lips, and he's cleansed, and then he's commissioned. Oftentimes this happens over and over in scripture where you have this theophany, this appearance of God to an individual, and they're overcome by their sinfulness, and then God cleanses them, and then he commissions them, and sends them out as a result. That was Isaiah's experience. The other disciples as well are astonished by this. It says, verse nine, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. I heard MacArthur once say to a group of high schoolers, he says, you know, I want you to know ahead of time that as you grow as a Christian and you mature in your faith, you're going to sin less. You're gonna put off things that once seem to dominate in your life. You're gonna see progress in that. You're gonna be encouraged by that. But though you're gonna sin less, you're gonna feel worse. <laughs> what a statement from you know, a man who's lived a Christian life for a long time. And it, was, it always stuck with me. And I think what he meant was, you may outwardly sin less, in, in areas where you, you once found it really difficult to overcome, but as you apply the scriptures, but you're gonna realize just how sinful you are, just how deep sin goes, and just how in your heart, in your desires, and sometimes in your, in your thought life, you still are so sinful. And Peter gets a fresh awareness of that as he draws near to Christ, as he's in the boat with him. I wonder if you've had those seasons in your life where you had a fresh closeness to Christ followed by a fresh conviction of your need for Christ. May that continue to happen for us because we need to stay humble. I think the best people who share the gospel with others are those who rightly understand who God is and who they are because they go, man, I don't deserve this. God is so gracious to me. They're freed up that much more to say, man, I know what this has done in my life. This person needs what I have had happen in my life. And so they're, they're humbled, they're, they're gracious as they interact with others because they know they're such a sinner as well. They, they tend not to be self-righteous, but they tend to be very compelling in their gospel witness. I love what Jesus does for Peter here. As Peter's afraid and Jesus says, do not be afraid. Courage, Peter, fear not. Here's an assurance for Peter, the assurance of pardon. And there's a fear that drives us from God, and there's a fear that drives us to God. The fear of God is a way, I think, in Scripture of expressing the intensity of the believer's love for God. It, it is such an intense love that we tremble. This makes sense of passages like Psalm 130, verse 4, which says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared huh, I wouldn't have put it that way. 
with you, I would think, with you there's forgiveness that you may not be feared. But the psalmist says, with you there's forgiveness, God, that you may be feared. That we would tremble at such a God who would be so gracious. We would go, what kind of love is this? And it would cause such an intensity of love that we know this God. J.C. Ryle said, out of Christ, God is a consuming fire. In Christ, he is a reconciled father. Without Christ, the strictest moralist may well tremble as he looks forward to his end. Through Christ, the chief of sinners may approach God with confidence and feel perfect peace. Makes all the difference where you stand with Christ. Having assured Peter, though, of mercy, he then commissions him to catch men. And Peter was now commissioned, and it says, the wording here is important, this idea of catching men. Uh, it's the idea of catching something alive. Kind of puts two words together here of catching and being alive. So you could see how this illustration could go wrong. You know, what do you do with fish? You catch them and they die and you eat them. <laughs> and so he's like, hey, I'm going to have you guys be catchers of men. Well, he doesn't want them to catch and kill people, but it's a catch and release. As one person said, you, you, people are caught for Christ and they're released from their sins. And, and so the idea here is you're to catch people alive for God. And the language is also important. Fishermen will sometimes joke and say, there's a reason it's called fishing and not catching. You know, usually when they're having a bad go of it. <laughs> but here he says, not you'll be fishers of men, you'll be catchers of men. Why? Because there's a success built into this. They will not fail. Now, they may not always see a catch like this, but as they cast the net out, they will catch souls for Christ. As the gospel goes out, and it is true for you and I as well, as you consistently show forth the gospel uh, through your life and through your, your words, people will be caught. It is guaranteed. I mean, what an encouragement. There is success to this endeavor. Peter, don't you worry. You will catch men. It is a certainty. You will be successful. And so Peter is now ready to be commissioned. Now, much more work needs to happen in his life and the disciples, but he's been humbled, and now he's able to be used by the Lord. And we must be humbled time and again to be effective instruments in God's hand. People are caught by the humbled servants of Christ. And finally, we see forth that people are caught by the heart-captivating person of Christ. People are caught by the heart-captivating person of Christ. In verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They give it up. They are done with fishing. Sell the boat, sell the tackle. We're going on the road with Jesus. What, what would lead these men, not only to follow Christ in salvation, but in their vocation? Well, I think the more they encountered Jesus over that year, the more they saw how compelling this man was, how captivating he was in his words, in his actions, in what he was doing. There was something different about him, and he was worth everything. He was the treasure hidden in the field. As Jesus says later in Matthew 13, the man found it, and when he found this treasure in the field, he went and sold everything he had and went and bought that field. And actually, the text says that he went in his joy and sold everything that he had. There wasn't a reluctance to say, oh, fishing career, I've built this up. No, there was an eagerness to sell all, relinquish all and say, he is so worth it. That is, it is a joy for me to rid myself of all these things, to follow after him, to give my life to him, to have the singular passion. It's like what Paul says in our scripture reading, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, it just makes it even more significant that this happens immediately on the heels of what, what just took place. After their single greatest catch of fish, they leave it all to follow Jesus. I mean, this is like hitting a grand slam and then going, I'm done, I retire. Or like hitting a hole in one and being like, hang up the clubs. Who wants to buy my clubs? I'm done, I quit. You know, usually for me, when I'm on 18 and I, and I hit a good shot, it's like, okay, I guess I'll come back and play again. You know, I may have had a bad round all 17 holes and then I hit a great drive on 18. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm, I think something's happening here. I need to keep playing. I mean, these guys, they have the best catch of their lives and they go, all right, hanging it up because there's something more compelling for them to do now, more captivating. Daniel Block says, 
The priority of their lives is no longer fishing, but following Jesus and fishing for people. Have you been compelled by the person, the work of Christ, to follow him? To have him be significant in your life, not only on Sunday, but through the week, that he's influencing all things? And let me remind you, if you have done that, it is worth to continue to follow him, to continue to pursue him and follow hard after him. Have you been caught by Christ? Has he caught you through the hearing of the gospel? What does it mean to be a Christian? It is to see your sinfulness, to be humbled, and to savingly know Jesus Christ, and to then steadfastly follow him and spread the news of him to others. Before you can do anything meaningful for Christ, you have to encounter Christ for yourself and to continue to do so. Seeing Jesus rightly then allows us to see ourselves rightly and then see our purpose properly. Everything comes into focus when we see Jesus rightly. You know, the end of John's gospel has a very similar account to this. It's almost a repeat. There's some differences, but Peter has denied the Lord and he's gone out and he's gone back to fishing. Um, or Sorry, sorry, he had denied the Lord. He's been restored. Uh, or, sorry, he hasn't been restored yet, but he, uh, they've seen the resurrected Jesus. Yeah, let's get things right. He's seen the resurrected Jesus, but they still go back to fishing. They, they were told to obey the Lord and go to Galilee and wait for him there. And yet they're like, well, we're not gonna wait. So they go back to fishing. Jesus comes on the shore and he's like, hey, you guys caught anything? And they're like, no. <laughs> and he's like, cast your net on the other side. And they do it and they catch. And you know, John was a fisherman. He says, we caught 153 fish. <laughs> he knows the exact number of fish. And Peter jumps out of the boat into the water to swim to shore because he remembers deja vu. This has happened before. I know exactly who's on the shore. And it leads to the Lord restoring him to do what? Shepherd. Shepherd my sheep. He commissions him again to go out. Jesus lays out for us here the basics, the fundamentals for fishing. I think if we turn this passage backwards, we might see how it works in our lives. Having been caught by Christ through the word, we're humbled before him, captivated by his person, and we are then commissioned to catch others by obeying the command to get the word out. It's always drilled into us in seminary. You worry about the depth of your ministry, and God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. Don't be allured by pragmatics, uh, church growth methods, to try and get more people through other means than the simple proclamation of the word. Be faithful, get the word out. People are caught by the hearing of the word, clearly proclaimed, and God through his power draws people to himself. So may we be faithful in each of our lives to do that. Lord, we thank you for this great story, this great living sermon of what it is you've called the apostles to and then what you even have called some of us to in a vocational way, but uh, all of us to in a, in a practical way in our lives to catch people for you, to through our lives and, our, and, and the message we proclaim that has saved us, that people would be caught for you. Lord, give us boldness to, to do so and openness to be available to you whenever that may come. And Lord, we so are captivated by Christ. We pray for more understanding of him that, that we might be humbled in our sin and yet encouraged of your grace and forgiveness. And that in knowing that forgiveness, we would fear you. In Jesus' name, amen.